This is Doc Vader, the most powerful clinician in the galaxy. You are listening to the Inside the Boards podcast. The force is moderately to severely strong with this one. Vader out. Welcome to the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Just an apology for the choppiness of this interview. We did the best we could in post-production, but there are some limitations to today's uh, recording quality. I'm kind of embarrassed about it, so I, I wanted to start a disclaimer at the beginning. At any rate, this is part two of our cardiovascular review with Dr. Karen Shackelford from Board Vitals. You're listening to the Inside the Board's Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1. Let's get right into today's show. In this one, we have a 65-year-old male being evaluated for crushing substernal chest pain radiating to his left arm, which began one hour prior to admission. In addition to ST segment elevation in two adjacent leads on an ECG, the ECG also demonstrates sinus bradycardia with sinus pauses. Which of the following coronary arteries is most likely occluded? And our answer choices here are A, the right coronary, B, the posterior descending, C, the right marginal artery, or D, the left anterior descending artery. So this is your wheelhouse. Yeah. So in this question, the student should focus on the area of injury, which is specifically the sinoatrial node. When the sinoatrial node is injured, it's the most likely injury to result in sinus bradycardia and sinus pause. The second part of the question relates to the specific blood supply of the SA node, and it's derived from the right coronary artery in about 60% of individuals. In 40%, the sinoatrial artery is derived from the left circumflex. That was not an answer option in this case. And in rare cases, less than a percent, the sinoatrial artery originates from either the coronary sinus, the descending aorta, or the distal RCA. You mentioned that 40% of cases, the artery that feeds the um, SA node arises from the left circumflex uh, coronary artery. If that were included as a choice here, how would you distinguish um, that uh, from the right coronary? Is it just based on the fact that one is more common than the other? Yes, exactly. So for this question, the single best answer option to the question of which artery is most likely occluded is option A the right coronary artery, both because it's statistically the most common blood supply to the SA node, but also because the second most common blood supply, the left circumflex, is not an answer option. Although this question seems to kind of reward the student who has a detailed knowledge of coronary anatomy, I think a more likely question on the board exam would be a question that focused on the blood supply of the atrioventricular node, for example. The AV node is far more likely to be consistently supplied by the RCA. It happens 90% of the time, and only about 10% of individuals have a left-dominant blood supply. So I think that might have been a a little bit better anatomy question. But yeah, basically, um, all these single best 
answer questions will have answers that are that range from completely you know true to completely false and less circumflex is going to be in there is certainly something you consider but then you have to ask yourself well which is most likely occluded it's good to be prepared for questions like that but i don't think the boards are actually out to to trick you you know, I think it's good to have maybe more difficult review questions in some ways because it forces you to pay attention a little bit and then you kind of remember, oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, I think maybe a better question would have been to ask about the AV node because the blood supply, the difference is a little bit more distinct. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, so I guess just to uh, give you some bite-sized pieces of information here, um, just in case this does show up, uh, remember that the right coronary artery supplies the SA node most commonly, and then the uh, AV node is supplied almost um, entirely uh, in most circumstances by a branch of the right coronary artery, specifically the posterior descending artery. Descending, yeah. All right. Any other high-yield points here before we move on to the next? Uh, no, I think that uh, basically just to uh, you know realize that when you have some pathology in the heart or you have specific findings, uh, you know they'll pretty much point you to the location and then the blood supply of your infarct. Yes, ma'am. All right. Next, we have this time a 60-year-old female who presents to the ED for um, with a chief complaint of crushing substernal chest pain radiating to her jaw. In addition, she has diaphoresis and nausea. Vitals show a pulse of 50 beats per minute, and her blood pressure is 130 over 80. On laboratory studies, her troponin is 5.2. An ECG shows ST segment elevation and leads in uh, 2-3 AVF and reciprocal ST depression and T-wave inversion in lead AVL. She's given morphine, isosorbide dinitrate, lisinopril, aspirin, and heparin. 30 minutes later, the patient complains of increasing shortness of breath and dizziness. Her pulse is 55 beats per minute now, and her blood pressure is 90 over 60. Cardiac auscultation is unremarkable. Her extremities are cold and clammy. And the question we have to tackle here is, which of the following most likely caused this patient's decompensation? So our answer choices are A, ventricular free wall rupture, B, a papillary muscle rupture, C, decreased preload, or D, aortic dissection. All right, so we've got this 60-year-old woman with classic symptoms for an MI. Um, She uh, also has evidence of elevated troponins and uh, EKG findings consistent with uh, a STEMI. She's given some uh, treatment um, within the, uh, the Mona B uh, kind of classification of things, uh, minus the beta blocker here. Um, and then after being given that, she has some uh, decompensatory findings of shortness of breath and blood pressure drop with cold and clammy extremities. Lots to unpack there, but what do we need to know? 
So she's just had an MI, so you're thinking complication of an MI would probably be, a, you know, a first thought. Further examination of the question stammer vignette reveals that there is a more likely etiology for the patient's decompensation. When you're solving a question like this, the first step is a close review of all the information that is provided in the question stem. So in addition to the positive troponin, the author specifically notes the ST segment elevation in the inferior leads G3 and AVF. Inferior myocardial infarction is typically the result of occlusion of the right coronary artery. This is true in 80% of individuals. In the remaining cases, the left circumflex artery or a wraparound LAG provide blood supply to this region. The RCA supplies the SA node in 60% of individuals, so occlusion of the RCA before origination of the sinoatrial artery can result in SA nodal dysfunction. In a patient with an inferior MI who has sinus bradycardia, beta blockers, which are routinely administered to patients with acute myocardial infarction, should definitely be avoided. The other important caution in management of a patient with an inferior myocardial infarction is the actual focus of this question. Right ventricular infarction occurs in up to 40% of patients who have an inferior MI. In this subset of patients, nitrates and morphine are among the drugs that are contraindicated. This is because the uh, right ventricular infarction results in impaired diastolic filling of the right ventricle. So it creates preload dependence. So, uh, so the best answer here is decreased preload. Diuretics and venodilators reduce preload. And in the setting of a right ventricular infarction, this can lead to the development of cardiogenic shock. So a review of the stem shows that this patient received both nitrates and morphine which makes decreased preload a likely cause of the patient's current symptoms. Treatment for hypotension as a result of cardiogenic shock includes fluid loading and onotropic agents, among other things. This question can also be approached by eliminating the other answer options. Option A is free wall rupture, which can result in cardiac tamponade and hemorrhagic shock. This patient doesn't demonstrate the classic clinical signs that are associated with cardiac tamponade. They include muffled heart sounds and jugular venous distension. Ventricular free wall rupture also typically occurs later in the post-MI course, usually more than three days out. Papillary muscle rupture is also typically a later complication occurring on average three to seven days after acute myocardial infarction. Signs of papillary muscle rupture include a holosystolic murmur due to mitral regurgitation with dyspnea and evidence of pulmonary edema. Another option is fibrinous pericarditis, which is a complication of acute MI that develops two to four days out in most cases. Clinical features of pericarditis, of course, include pain with inspiration that's often relieved by leaning forward and is often exacerbated in the supine position. EKG findings that are typically associated with pericarditis include diffuse ST segment elevations in all these. Finally, fibrinous pericarditis is not a cause of cardiogenic shock. And the last option is aortic dissection, another incorrect answer option. It is not a typical complication of acute myocardial infarction. Clinically, aortic dissection would be characterized most likely by tearing substernal chest pain that may radiate to the back, and the patient may have pulse deficits. 
All right. So the student here really needs to know in the vignette that um, her STEMI is um, located in those inferior leads. And um, are these findings, the ST elevation in 2-3 AVF and reciprocal ST depression T-wave inversion in AVL, is that the only kind of um, or most likely EKG pattern in somebody who has an inferior uh, MI? Well, Patrick, in an inferior myocardial infarction, ST segment elevations are found in 2-3 and AVF. Now, if you suspect right ventricular infarction, which you should certainly consider in anybody with an inferior MI, then right-sided leads V3R to V6R can be obtained. They're basically placed in a mirror image of leads V1 to V6. So specific finding that's associated with right ventricular infarction is ST elevation in V1. And that's because V1 is the only standard EKG lead that looks directly at the right ventricle. Another finding consistent with RVI is an ST segment elevation in lead 3 that's greater than the elevation in lead 2. And again, this is because lead 3 is more rightward facing than lead 2. So it's more sensitive to the current of injury in the right ventricle. So if you're in the ER or whatever um, and you have a finding of inferior MI, you might want to get a, right, a right-sided lead. But yeah, that, that is um, very typical. It's probably a classical, like whenever they generally ask medical students during rotations to localize infarct, I'd say inferior MI is the most popular. Uh, the most popular to be asked or the most common? To location? be asked. <laughs> most uh, popular to be asked. Okay. Yeah. That's what I But they about. do, they are common. Uh, they occur, 50% of myocardial infarctions are inferior. So yeah, actually, they are the most common. All right. And then uh, inferior MIs, if that's all you have, avoid beta blockers. And with the complication of a, a right ventricular infarction, avoid nitrates and morphine, correct? Right. And again, I think that it would have been uh, maybe a little much to ask or maybe even giving too much information to say, well, they did a right-sided lead. And I think that it's just like very key just to remember if you have an inferior MI that you have a good possibility 40% possibility that you'll also have a right ventricular infarct. So just be aware of that and um, avoid that, like morphine and the nitrates that reduce preload. Okay. So there's a number of ways that, uh, especially I'm sure you know from uh, editing and writing questions, that this uh, one could kind of be changed up to test different concepts. So if we had a similar vignette and the uh, interrogatory were changed to something like, which of the following drugs most likely caused this patient's decompensation? And we have morphine, uh, nitrate, lisinopril, aspirin, and heparin. I guess the best answer would probably be either morphine or the nitrate, correct? Yes. So, uh, yeah. So in that case, uh, in the vignette, they'd probably exclude one of those, or in the answer choices, only list one. Morphine uh, drops both preload and afterload. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, nitrates really have a predominant effect on preload. So I I don't know, we were always taught that either, but I, I think the one that you'd be most expected to at least remember would be, you know, the one that it, 
notable for reducing preload would be nitrate. So I probably would choose that if it were an either or, which it won't be because, again, the boards aren't trying to trick you. Sure. What about a similar presentation where they asked which of the following drugs would be contraindicated in this patient, and they did not list any of these drugs being given to her? How do you think that the answer choices would be set up there? Because they could list beta blocker, uh, lisinopril, aspirin, um, morphine, and nitrate. Uh, does that make sense? Like, what what's the most... I guess basically they present um, the findings that lead you to the diagnosis here uh, in this patient and then ask uh, which of the following drugs would be contraindicated and then list as answer choices a, a bunch of drugs. Right. I would look for the drug that reduces is most notable for reducing preload. And I'm assuming that you're saying that they would give a nitrate as an example, which is you know, primarily... Um, I don't know, you want to optimize preload in a right ventricular infarct. You know, there are a lot of things that can uh, affect compromise, like the right ventricular output. A lot of them compromise afterload, like, you know, alpha blockers or mechanical ventilation with peaks, something like that. But I'd say nitrates, even diuretics would be, you know, one thing that... um, might be an answer, and that would also reduce preload. So if a diuretic was a choice, you know, especially rapid-acting diuretic, in, say, a scenario where the patient had, you know, evidence of pulmonary congestion as well as having, like, right heart failure, then that would be the choice because that also would reduce right ventricular preload. Gotcha. We always say, like, we're not trying to do a an exhaustive review of these topics, but really be able to give you something you can take with you on test day. So um, let's let's move on to our last. Final question. A 66-year-old female presents with a chief complaint of dyspnea. She notes her shortness of breath um, has been worsening over the past two weeks and is now present with both rest and activity. She's begun sleeping in her recliner, secondary to the symptom uh, occurring when she lies flat. She denies chest pain, cough, fever, and syncope. uh, syncope. Her past medical history is remarkable for coronary artery disease and two prior MIs. She's been non-compliant with her medication regimen. Her pulse is 105, and her blood pressure is 135 over 90, and her oxygen saturation is 88% on room air. On physical examination, she has 2-plus pitting edema in the lower extremities and jugular venous distension. A chest x-ray reveals cardiomegaly and pulmonary edema. Elevation of which of the following substances is most useful for confirming a diagnosis in this patient? And our answer choices are A, beta-naturesis peptide, B, troponins, <laughs> C, hepatic transaminases, D, creatinine, or E, lactic acid. This woman, it sounds like she's got heart failure. I can get that much. Right. Um, so basically, you what's most useful for confirming that diagnosis. And although you'll find elevations in pretty much, um, you know, you can find elevations in pretty much all of these and for one reason or another in heart failure, uh, the most useful for confirming the diagnosis would be A, B-type natriuretic peptide. 
she has a history of MI, so she's most likely got systolic failure. She's got decreased renal perfusion, so she probably has elevated creatinine from you know, some element of pre-renal failure, right? Decreased renal perfusion. Um, but BNP is released from myocytes in response to wall stretch with volume overload, as is atrial natriuretic peptide. And its function is to promote diuresis because um, whenever you're in systolic failure, you have that volume overload, uh, but decreased renal perfusion because of your decreased cardiac output, the macular density in the kidney is going to increase renin production. And that results in you know activation of um, the renin-angiotensin system with additional volume retention. So BNP functions to promote diuresis in, in these patients. Now, ANP, atrial natriuretic peptide, like I said, is also elevated, but not to the, the same extent. So BNP levels can provide a projective measure of, of cardiac function in heart failure. They're highly correlated with the degree of heart failure, although BNP can be elevated you know, for other, other diseases. Um, they have a big negative predictive value. So if you wanted to rule out heart failure in this patient, uh, I don't know why you would think she was having an acute MI, but say you thought she, perhaps she had a, a PE. Say you're way off base. BNP was, you know, maybe that was in your differential and you're thinking heart failure or PE. And um, if the BNP is negative, then pretty much consider heart failure ruled out. Now, that's obviously not the case here, but it's a good test for heart failure. But like I said, pulmonary disease, renal disease can also cause elevated uh, BNP, but um, you can go through the other. Right-sided heart failure can cause liver congestion uh, and dysfunction with elevated transaminase, so it's not useful for the diagnosis of heart failure. Troponin testing is useful for an acute coronary syndrome, and also like uh, cardiac trauma, uh, heart failure can lead to elevated troponin. It's not going to be specific for heart failure and therefore not uh, useful in the diagnosis. We talked about decreased renal perfusion, uh, could elevate creatinine, but sure, it's not going to be diagnostic of heart failure. I think your listeners know that. And then uh, lactic acid, oh, that will, of course, if you're on cardiogenic shock uh, with hypoperfusion, decreased oxygen delivery to the tissues, and an increase in your anaerobic metabolism, production of elevated lactate levels uh, would occur, but again, not specific for cardiogenic shock or for heart failure. So that's just kind of a basic physiology question that segues into a basic pathology question. And those are the kinds of questions you just love. They're a, a, a brief respite uh, if you've gone through a block and get thrown a yeah, bunch of really exactly. difficult ones. So Exactly. Um, I guess heart failure, one thing worth uh, pointing out is that there are um, three drugs that can or have been shown to decrease mortality in patients who have heart failure, and those are um, the ACE inhibitors or, or I guess, angiotensin uh, two receptor blockers. And then secondly, beta blockers, uh, except in acute decompensated heart failure. And finally, uh, spironolactone. And that actually, uh, I think, works much the same way dialing down the renin-angiotensin system through some mechanism. I think it works much the same way as the ARBs and the ACE inhibitors. Also in heart failure, the uh, sympathetic nervous uh, system, you know, uh, kicks in and you want to reduce the neurohormonal activation. A compensation meant to... Um, 
maintain your perfusion pressure. So the key part of that, again, is the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. But yeah, with the activation of the uh, renin, angiotensin, and it's just, it's a vicious cycle. All right. Well, I think that's that's good for today. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Patrick. Just a reminder, you can get even more high-yield learning on the go with the Inside the Boards app and our all-audio QBank. A subscription gets you additional high-yield in-depth question dissections, audio-optimized practice-style USMLE questions for step one or step two, and we're adding additional features and content all the time. Just click the link in the show notes or search Apple's App Store for Inside the Boards, all one word.